0: Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John this morning. And we're going to look at one of Jesus' most famous sermons, His epic discourse on the bread of life. And if you're visiting with us today, we've been uh, working our way through this uh, Gospel, the Gospel of John. And uh, we uh, are just loving what we're learning. And uh, it's all about believing in Jesus Christ so that we would live That we would have abundant life here during this lifetime, but also eternal life in heaven. I heard a story once about a man whose lifelong dream was to go on a cruise. And so for years he scrimped and he saved until he finally had enough money to purchase a ticket for a week-long excursion on a large ocean liner. Knowing he couldn't afford the kind of elegant food that he'd seen pictured in the cruise brochures, he planned to bring his own food. And after years of frugal living, and with his entire savings having gone to pay for the ticket for the cruise, all he could afford was a loaf of bread and a jar of peanut butter. Well, the first few days aboard the luxurious ship were thrilling, more than he could have ever imagined, better than he had dreamed. He would eat peanut butter sandwiches alone in his room, and then spend the rest of his time relaxing in the sun on the deck and enjoying all the many activities aboard the ship, However, by midweek, the man was beginning to notice that he was the only person on board who wasn't eating all the magnificent food that seemed to be available 24 hours a day. And so by the last day of the cruise, the man couldn't stand it any longer. His bread had gotten stale. He'd run out of peanut butter. And everywhere he turned, he saw people eating to their heart's content. And everything else on the cruise really lost its appeal. All he could think about was the food. And so, finally, in sheer desperation, he stopped one of the porters as he walked walked by, and he said, "Man, tell me, what do I have to do to get a meal? I'm dying for some decent food, and I'm willing to do anything to pay for it." And the porter said, "Well, sir, don't you have a ticket for the cruise?" He says, "Well, of course I do, but I spent everything I had for the ticket, so I have nothing left to buy food." He said, "Sir, don't you realize that the meals are included with your ticket? You can eat all you want." And sadly, I think this is the way thousands, even millions of people go through their lives here on earth. They fail to realize that a lavish supply of spiritual food is offered to us without price in the person of Jesus Christ. And so they go through this life munching on stale peanut butter sandwiches when God has provided all of us with a free, all-you-can-eat buffet of healthy, spiritually satisfying food. It reminds me of that great call of God in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. God called out, ho, which was, hey, listen up, let me get your attention. He said, ho, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. God's call in the Old Testament echoed down through the ages And was repeated in the New Testament by His Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus called out to all who were hungry and thirsty to come and to satisfy themselves in Him. We've already met a a woman at a well in John chapter 4. Where Jesus likened Himself to spiritual water that would quench her parched soul. Here in John chapter 6... He likens himself to spiritual bread that could feed starved souls. And yet despite Christ's generous offer, many of the Jews in his day were ignorant of what they were missing in Christ, just like the man on that cruise ship was ignorant. But it wasn't just ignorance that kept them from finding satisfaction in Christ as much as it was their willful disobedience, their willful rebellion. And I think the same is true of many people today. They reject Christ's claims because of defiance more than out of ignorance. Well, last week we looked at two of the most well-known miracles that Jesus ever performed, the feeding of the 5,000, which we said was more like feeding of the 10 or 20,000, right? if you include the women and children, and also the walking on water, when he walked on the water during the storm. And these two miracles happened back to back on the same day, and they really served to set the stage for this day, the day we're going to look at this morning, because Jesus all along was planning to give this profound lecture about him being the bread of life. And so, really, the, the, the sign of feeding the 5,000, or the miracle of feeding the 5,000, was a sign. It was something, it was pointing to something else. And he was about to show us what that miracle was really all about. It wasn't about providing food for supper, it was about providing food for their souls. Um, we said last week that multiplying food and manipulating water were, were woven into the very fabric of God's dealing with, with His people in the Old Testament. And so when Jesus shows up and, and He had the same power to perform the same kind of miracles involving food and water, that should have served as obvious proof to the Jews that He was God. And yet, as we're going to see this morning, the crowd's response uh, shows that they refused to believe that He was who He said He was. And even after this epic sermon is over, or was over, most of those who had been following him walked away, never to return. And so, what he had to say here in this sermon was life changing. And so, we're going to look at this discourse this morning, uh, this great discourse on the heels of his miracle of feeding the 5,000. It's found in verses 22 all the way through verse 59. And again, as we're in a narrative, uh, which means more of a storyline, uh, it's, it's usually better to kind of take a, a chunk of Scripture in its entirety, right? And to see the big picture and not necessarily break it up into smaller pieces like we can do when we're studying an epistle, like one of Paul's letters. And so I'd like us to see the big picture of, of this, of this uh, discourse all at once. I will give it away, though, that I didn't make through it the whole thing First service, so we can't make it through this service because then I don't know what I'd preach next Sunday, right? I'd have to preach something different to you than I did the first service, but we didn't make it through all the way. I tried really, really hard, but we didn't make it. So we'll get through a good portion of it though this morning. But this discourse, I believe, was intended to rescue people from an empty life. You may have come in here this morning and you're feeling empty. You're wondering what life is all about. You've got this ache in your soul. You've got this, this vacuum, this hole that just, is just you can't seem to fill. And you're, you're beginning to question, what, what, is, what is life all about anyway? Why am I on this planet? And so Jesus said what he's about to say, to rescue people like you from an empty life and to show you that he can not only provide physical food to satisfy people's stomachs, but more importantly, he can provide spiritual food to satisfy people's souls. And I've broken up this discourse into three sections. We're going to see questioning in verses 22 through 40. We're going to see quibbling in verses 41 through 51. And we're going to see quarreling in verses 52 to 58. And we're going to see how, as Jesus conversed with the crowd, the tension escalated. It mounted, and their questioning turned to quibbling, where they began to grumble and complain, which resulted ultimately in quarreling. When they begin to argue amongst themselves and even argue with Jesus. And so let's look first of all at the crowd's questioning of Jesus, starting in verse 22. He says, The next day the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias nearer to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor His disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So if you remember last week, after Jesus performed the miracle of the, of the multiplication of the, the five loaves and the, and the two fish, uh, the people were ready to make Him king. And they wanted to take Him by force and make Him king. And so Jesus diffused that, that, uh, that situation by sending the disciples away and, and told them to get out of there, and then he sent the crowds away. And so this is the next day, and now the crowds had come back to look for Jesus, but he was nowhere to be found. And they had seen with their own eyes the disciples leave the night before in that only boat that was there, but Jesus hadn't gone with them. He had stayed behind and talked with them for a few more minutes, and so as they stood there wondering... Where Jesus might have gone, more people from Tiberias, which was on the west side of, of the Sea of Galilee, had made their way over to the Golan Heights. This is where the miracle took place, where these people were standing around scratching their heads wondering where Jesus went. They, they showed up, probably because they heard about the miracle and wanted to see uh, Jesus with their own eyes. And so they decided to uh, climb aboard these boats and travel to the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee to look for Jesus in a place called Capernaum, which was where he uh, lived during his ministry years. It was his base of operation. It's where some of his disciples lived. And so uh, that's where he uh, chose to, to, to operate from in Capernaum. So they thought that was a good place to look. And they quickly located him in the local synagogue and uh, began to ask him questions which provided Jesus with a a platform, a context, to teach them spiritual truth based on the miracle he'd done the day before. Notice verse 59, the very end of this discourse, John records these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Well, notice the first question that the crowd asked them when they finally caught up with Jesus. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi... When did you get here? I think probably the question was more, How did you get here? We had to take a boat. How did you get here? There were no boats. Surely you didn't have time to walk over here. And so they were curious about how Jesus had gotten from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other in such a short amount of time. Well, Jesus never answers their question, he simply goes straight for their motives. And he questions their motives for seeking him out. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So Jesus knew that they weren't seeking him out of uh, or, or because of who he was, but rather because of what he could do for them. Can anyone say ouch? Okay. Because... We do that often, don't we? We're guilty of that. We're guilty of seeking the Lord, not because of who He is, but for what He can do for us. And Instead of just going before God for the sheer awe of who He is, and worshiping and praising Him for who He is. It it seems like the only time we come to God is when we need something, or we want something. And so Jesus knew that these, these people... Didn't have a right heart, didn't have a right motive. The the, the mighty miracle that they had seen the day before hadn't convinced them that he was the creator God, the Messiah. And so rather than grasping the, the spiritual significance of his person and his mission, they simply saw Jesus as their next free meal. They were more concerned about their stomachs than they were about their souls. They were more focused on the here and now than they were on the hereafter. And so Jesus says to them this in verse 27, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him the Father God has set His seal. And so Jesus is very blunt with them. He says, guys, stop looking for food. Stop striving after physical food which only lasts for a a short time. You need to be seeking out spiritual food which will last forever And he says, I, the Son of Man, was sent from God the Father to provide you that spiritual food, that when you eat this food, it will result in you having eternal life, you living forever, you never dying. And he says that God has set his seal on me. In other words, God confirmed that Jesus could be trusted. Whenever we see a seal, right, on a product of some kind, that that we know that's the manufacturer's seal. And what that's saying is, you can trust this product, right? That it's a good product. And what's inside, you can eat, you can drink. And so God set his seal on Jesus to let everyone know that he could be trusted to deliver what he promised this spiritual food that would result in eternal life. He got their attention. And they asked him a second question, verse 28. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Whatever he was talking about, they were interested in. And so they immediately wanted to know what they had to do to get this eternal life that he was talking about. And I think their question here reflected the influence that the spiritual leaders of their day had on their thinking. Because they had taught them The religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, had taught them that salvation could be earned by their own good works, and the Pharisees had developed this this works-based religion where God's favor depends on human merit, and I think that's why religion is so popular in our world today, because it really provides people with something they can do to earn their salvation, something that they can do to be made right with God. And I think there's part of every human being, every, it's part of our human nature to, to want to feel like we contribute something to our salvation. But the Bible couldn't be clearer that there is absolutely nothing that we can do to contribute to our salvation. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Salvation is not based on anything we do, but it's based on what God has already done through the life and death of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we see this time and time again in the Scriptures, where... The Bible says we are not saved by what we do, but saved by faith in what Christ has done. Romans chapter 3, verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified or declared right before God by by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a free gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are we saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift from God, not of works, right? So that no one can boast. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, another reference says this. It says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And so no one has ever or will ever be saved by their own good works, by being a good, you can never be good enough, right, to get to heaven. But notice how Jesus plays along with their concept of works. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. And so they're like, oh, he's going to tell us. They got their pen and paper out. I'm ready. Jesus, tell me what I got to do. Tell me what I got to do, because I want this to draw. Tell me what I got to do. He says, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. That's that's it? That's all I got to do? Is believe? Yep, that's all you got to do. And so the work that we're required to do, if you could even call it a work, right? It's to simply believe that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to take the penalty for sinners like us. And faith, when you think about it, is not a work in a sense that it implies some effort of ours, which, it, which achieves some result, but it's simply our response to the work which God has performed in Christ. And even the faith itself is a gift from God. Not only is salvation a free gift of God, but even our faith is a gift from God. Ephesians 2.8, right? For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of ourselves, it's a gift from God. So not even the faith that we have comes from ourselves. That faith is a gift and so is the repentance that God requires because the Bible says we must repent and believe turn away from sin, and turn to Christ, and both of those are gifts. Repentance is not a work. It's a gift. The Scripture says that, that we need to pray that God would grant people repentance and lead them to the knowledge of the truth. And so when Jesus says here, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him who He has sent, we already know this is one of the main themes of the the book of John, right? We don't have it up there this morning. Our title slide says believe and live, right? But this is specifically the, the thread that unites the rest of this chapter. Notice verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. <laughs> verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning whom they were who did not believe. And then verse 69. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So everything that Jesus is about to say here in this discourse is related to what it means to believe in Him, to place your faith in His finished work, and to pledge your allegiance to Him. Notice verse 30. They asked Him a third question. They said, so what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? I mean, this is audacious for them, right? The day after, the very day after, right, they had just seen an amazing miracle where Jesus had turned uh, these two two fish and these five loaves into this uh, abundance of food that was able to feed 10, 15, 20,000 people with some left over, some to spare. And they're still asking him, for another sign, another miracle. Show us something, do something, so that we will believe, to to, to prove that you're worthy of our trust. Why should we believe in you? You're telling us to do a work. What work are you gonna do? I mean, you think what he had done the day before would have been enough, right? Notice what they say, verse 31. (coughs) Excuse me. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread of heaven to eat. So basically again they're comparing Jesus to Moses back in verse 14. Uh, remember they said therefore when the people saw the sign which he had performed they said this is the, truly the prophet who is to come into the world and they were referring back to Deuteronomy where uh, where Moses had prophesied that the Messiah would come and would be able to excuse me do miracles like he was able to do. And so they wanted Jesus to outdo Moses. And they said, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread of heaven to eat, talking about Moses. And he's saying, listen, you just provided us one meal's worth of food. But Moses, he provided food every day for 40 years. Can you top that? I mean, if you expect us to believe you're the prophet that Moses said would come the Messiah, then you got to do better than that. And so Jesus, once again, had to clarify. Verse 32, Jesus then said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus is saying, listen, Moses wasn't the one responsible for sending manna for heaven. God was. And the man of God sent was for the purpose of sustaining the Jews in the wilderness, but it was also intended to be a type or a symbol of Christ. It foreshadowed how God would one day send Jesus from heaven to save the world, not just to sustain life, but to save life, to give life, to give eternal life. And I think it's important to note here that seven times in this discourse, Jesus emphasized that he had come down from heaven. He says it here in verse 33, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven. Verse 41, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Verse 42, I have come down out of heaven. Verse 50, This is the bread which comes down out of heaven. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. Verse 58, this is the bread which came down out of heaven. Do you think he's trying to get something across here? Every time he said that, he was declaring that he was God. Who who lives in heaven? God. So who comes from heaven? God. He's the only one who can come from heaven. And so he was declaring that he was God here. And then notice verse 34. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. So they think they're tracking now. They're like, oh, this sounds, this is too good to be true. I, I want this kind of bread. And they're like the woman at the well, right? Who at first thought Jesus was just talking about like real, literal water. It's like, hey, Jesus, I'd love that water. Then I wouldn't have to come out to this well every day in the hot sun. And so here, the Jews, again, were responding on a material level. They were, they were missing it, right? They were missing the spiritual implications of what Jesus was actually saying and so he had to spell it out very plainly for them and he does so in verse 35. Notice, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Hello. This is what I'm talking about. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. That little expression, I am the bread of life, is that same expression that God used to reveal himself to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush when Moses said, hey, who should I tell Pharaoh uh, sent me to deliver his people? And he said, tell him I am sent you. I love that, right? The self-existent God, always been, always has been, always will be, right? The eternal self-existent God. And so here Jesus was taking on the title of Jehovah, Yahweh, of the Old Testament. And so he was clearly claiming equality with the self-existent God who is, who was and is and is to come. And this, by the way, is the first of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. We've talked about how John is unique. Uh, It's different from the first three Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels. They're all pretty much the same. They, They view the life of Christ and the ministry of Christ from the same vantage point. But the Gospel of John is different. It's more supplemental, and so he, he includes some, some unique features that's more theological in nature, and so we, 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 we're kind of tracking these seven signs, right, these seven miracles that prove uh, that Jesus is who he said he was. He's the son of God, um, but he also now begins here, introduces what, he, what we're going to see as seven I am statements that also prove that Jesus is God. And so we have Jesus saying here, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, we're going to see him say, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, he says, I am the door of the sheep. Also in chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, after he raises Lazarus from the dead, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then in chapter 15, as part of his upper room discourse, he said to the disciples, I am the true vine. And so I think all this I am talk, okay, was for a reason, that he desires men to receive him, men and women to receive him, not simply for what he might give them, but for what he might be to them. Have you ever thought about that? That you don't receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior for what he can give you, but for who he can be for you. Big difference. And what does he say? What will he be for those people? He says that those who come to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. They will find in him complete satisfaction. That emptiness we talked about earlier, right? That we're all trying to fill throughout our lives with all the things that the world has to offer, but everything in life seems to leave us uh, feeling more empty than when we started with this sense of dissatisfaction that just won't go away. And so we keep having to go back for more and more, and we're still never satisfied. And so we have to go eat that other meal. We have to go buy that other car. We need to go move to that other house. We need to go on another vacation. We need to find another spouse. You fill in the blanks, right? And you're still feeling empty. But once you come to Christ, that recurring hunger and thirst in our hearts is finally satisfied in Him. You don't have to look anymore for anything else in this world to satisfy you. Whom have we in heaven but you, Lord, and on earth we desire nothing, right? Look at verse 36. Jesus said, I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Even though Jesus had clearly revealed Himself, to them to be the Messiah, they still refuse to believe in him. They still refuse to receive him. And if I was Jesus, which I'm not, far from it, that would probably have bummed me out. That would probably have discouraged me. That would probably have frustrated me. That here I am, right, making myself known to these people and they're just blowing me off. But that's not how Jesus responded. He wasn't discouraged or frustrated by the Jews' unbelief because he was confident that God's sovereign purposes would be fulfilled no matter what. And even if the Jews rejected him, he knew that the the success of his mission here on earth was assured because all those who God had chosen before the foundation of the earth to give to him as a love gift would ultimately believe in him and be his forever. You're like, whoa, what are you talking about? Well, look at what Jesus says next. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And here we have Jesus himself emphasizing the foundational truth that we see all throughout the scriptures of the sovereignty of God and salvation. This is a reference to election the doctrine of election, or predestination. And notice, he doesn't just mention it once. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Look at verse 65. For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Jump over to chapter 17. Notice this this thread that's weaved throughout the high priestly prayer of Christ as Jesus is praying for his followers, his disciples. This is what he says to God on multiple occasions. Verse 2, he says, Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf, and you do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Beloved, this is profound. The point Jesus is making here is that God loved Jesus, his son, before the foundation of the world. And so, to show his love for his son, he chose a group of people from this world who he would save and redeem and give as a gift, a love gift to his son, Jesus Christ, they would serve as his bride, the bride of Christ. And so if you're a believer, that means you were chosen by God before the foundation of the earth to be given as a gift of love to his son, Jesus Christ. How cool is that? Try to get your mind around that. In other words, your salvation is not about you. It's about God. It's about Christ. It's about this, this divine relationship, this mysterious union between the, the, the Trinity. And, and we have just, just been swept up in the, the awesomeness of all that. But we're a part of that by nothing of our own doing. And so because you were given as a gift of love to Jesus Christ, guess what? That makes you precious to Christ. And because of that, he is committed to taking care of you and protecting you and guarding you and keeping you for all eternity. And that's why Jesus said things like he did in John chapter 10, verse 27. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And back in chapter 17, as he was praying for his sheep, his followers, in verse 12, he said, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. He's talking about Judas. And so we need to understand that it is God's will that those who believe in Christ, those who have been given to Christ, would be preserved for eternal life forever and ever. Look back at John 6, verse 38. He goes on, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that, all of, that, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. In other words, if you are truly saved, right, right? you can't lose your salvation. I mean, how can you lose your salvation? How, how could you do something to lose your salvation if you didn't do anything to gain your salvation in the first place? And so it's God's will that those who believe in Christ will persevere. We, we talk about the perseverance of the saints, right? That those who are truly saved will, will, will hang in there and be faithful to Christ all the way to the day they die, right, and are taken to heaven. Well, the only reason why we persevere to the end is because Christ preserves us to the end. And so ultimately, our eternal security, right, the fact that we can't lose our salvation is based on God's sovereignty in salvation. If God wasn't sovereign over salvation, there would be a chance that we could lose our salvation. But because He is sovereign over salvation, there's no chance that we could lose our salvation. I love what Paul how Paul uh, communicates this thought of eternal security in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Who's doing all that stuff? It's not you, it's not me. It's God. God is the one who's acting. He's taking the initiative in our salvation. He's doing all the work. And Paul goes on in verse 35 to say, Well, who then will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, we are secure in Christ. Nothing and no one can snatch us away can pull us away from Christ. Back to John 6. Lest anyone think that if they aren't one of God's elect, then they can never be saved. That's kind of where our minds go whenever the subject of election comes up. Our minds just immediately want to take the doctrine of election to its logical conclusion and we're thinking, well, okay, well, what does that mean? That God's, God chose some to be saved and God chose some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. No, He didn't. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible never takes the doctrine of election to its logical conclusion. It wasn't like Jesus was at the schoolyard, right, getting ready to play a game and said, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, right? That we do when we're picking teams, right? He didn't do that. He graciously, out of this mass of humanity who were all headed to hell, and that we all deserve to go to hell, right? And he chose some of us to be saved. Not, by, not based on anything we did, but because of his sovereign grace and love for us. And yet some people think, oh no, what? this doctrine of election, it kind of freaks me out, it weaks me out, because wow, what if I'm not one of God's elect? and then, then I'll never be saved. There's nothing I can do about it. Well, notice how Jesus reassured us that if we truly want to be saved, and we come to Him in humble faith, guess what? He'll save us. Verse thirty-seven: All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. I was talking with someone recently, and it was so sad. It was tragic in my mind that they were, they were just saying. Uh, I, I don't. I don't think I'm one of God's elect, and that's why I'm not coming to church. And because it doesn't matter. I, it doesn't matter what I do if I'm not one of God's elect, and there's nothing I can do. And so they're sitting home waiting to get zapped by God. I'm like, listen, the Bible tells you to repent and believe. That's your responsibility. And your problem is you, you're way too focused on all the verses in the Bible about God's sovereignty and you forgot about all the verses in the Bible about man's responsibility. And you need to repent and believe. And if you repent and believe, that'll prove that you were one of his elect. And so salvation involves both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, and they're they're these two truths that come out of the scriptures that rise up and they seem to be opposing one another and they don't seem to to, to be able to, to, to be reconciled. They seem to contradict each other. And yet they're both in scripture and sometimes they're even side by side in the same verse or in the same passage. Notice Right on the heels of all this talk of God's sovereignty and salvation, look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. Doesn't say, for this is the will of the Father, everyone he's elected, right, will have eternal life. It says, whoever beholds the Son, sees the Son, and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And so Jesus is emphasizing here now man's responsibility in salvation, and it's not up to us to figure out whether or not we're one of God's elect. We're simply to place our faith in Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. And that's salvation from the human side, right? When, when, when you, you get asked, somebody asks you, hey, how did you get saved? You don't, I don't think you say this. I don't say this. Well, before time began, <laughs> before the foundation of the earth, God chose me for, you don't say that. What do you say? Well, hey, I was at this retreat. And I was really convicted of my sin, the way I was living, it. I was convicted. And, I, and, and the preacher was, you know, gave an opportunity to pray this prayer, and I, I prayed this prayer, and I walked down this aisle, right? And I signed this card, or whatever. Or, yeah, you know what? I was talking to my parents, or you know, I was talking to this other guy, or you know, however, whatever you, the human circumstances surrounding how you committed your life to Christ, right? We're just talking about salvation. That's our testimony. We're looking at our salvation from a human perspective, Right? But once you grow in Christ, you realize, well, you know what? The only reason that happened that day at that retreat or that day in my bedroom or wherever it was that you committed your life is because God had chosen me first, right? The best illustration that I've ever heard to kind of pull these two truths together is is, is just if you could picture a a doorway into heaven and across the archway on the outside. You're on the outside of heaven looking at at the doorway into heaven. On the archway, it says, whosoever will may come. And you're like, really? Well, I'm coming. I want to go to heaven. And I'm going to do what I, I, need, to, I need to place my faith, turn from my sin, and I'm going to put, place my trust in Christ. And so you walk in the door. And the door shuts behind you and you turn around and above the archway on the inside says, chosen before the foundation of the, of the earth. You don't necessarily know that, right? The, the doctrine of election isn't something we share on the street with the person we're, we're sharing the gospel with. Right? It's kind of a family secret. Once you get in the family, you realize, oh, really, that's how it happened? Okay. And so even though in our human brains, it's impossible to reconcile these two truths, don't try it, you'll hurt yourself, okay? We need to keep them in, in tension. There's this tension, like, how does that fit with, how does God's sovereignty fit with man's responsibility? And how does man's responsibility fit with God's sovereignty? You want to know? I don't know. I can't explain that to you fully. But again, it, we accept it by faith. And it's the price we have to pay to have a God who is so worthy to be worshiped. Because if we could figure him out, We wouldn't need him. But this is just a great reminder that his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so we simply must stand in awe and humility. And if you're going to lay awake at night wrestling in your mind about the doctrine of election What should keep us awake at night is not, well, why did he choose everybody? What should keep us awake at night is, why did he choose me? That's what should keep us awake at night. I love what Spurgeon said when he was asked how he reconciled what the Bible taught about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. He said, I never try to reconcile friends. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are not enemies. They're friends. So let's, let's, let's leave them alone, right? Let them be friends. And uh, again, we embrace them by faith. Well, there's more to be said about that in the verses ahead, but we'll have to wait until next week to look at those. And so let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and how it truly blows our mind that uh, there's parts of your word that we will never be able to fully comprehend on this earth. And it just reminds us, Lord, how humble we should be, how finite we are, how infinite you are, that you are so far beyond us and the fact that you would even think about us, let alone save us, rescue us, choose us out to be a, a, a special gift, kind of wrap us up and give us to your son Jesus. It's amazing. I pray that thought would just, just be plenty for us to meditate on and, 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 and chew on all week and that it would just fill our hearts with such gratitude and love to you and to Christ and just to, just to be humble, to realize that, that it's not about us. It's never about us. Even though we always want to make it about us, it's not about us. It's about you. And so I just pray we would live with just humble awe and wonder at who you are and your plan of salvation and how in the world we ever got to be a part of it. And so, Lord, help us as we think these things through and as we discuss them afterwards, Lord, I just pray that we would honor you, Lord, that we would um, be good Bereans who don't just take a preacher's word for it, but we'll just go back to our Bibles and and study it for ourselves. And, Lord, I know if people study their Bible, they're gonna find these, these things all over the place. It'll shock them. And I just pray that uh, we would just be diligent students of your word and not just argue out of our own opinions and and, uh, our own uh, perspective, Lord, but we would always um, reason together with the scriptures. And so, Lord, we just thank you for this morning and this opportunity to be together. Pray you bless uh, the rest of our day and week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.